KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. G'day guys, welcome back to Dylan Friends. This week on the podcast, Brett Conlon. This guy's an absolute star, incredible guy, incredible human. Funnily enough, uh, Big Darcy, producer Darcy, uh, found Brett from his documentary on stand called Attacking Life. Um, we watched it. It was unbelievable, and we thought we've got to get this guy in for a chat. Um, Brett is a shark attack survivor. He was a surfer, a professional surfer, mind you, was unfortunately attacked by a shark and, and has lived to tell the tale, which which is absolutely incredible. And he, he shares everything about the incident, what's occurred um, post and how that's impacted his life, what he's learned and what he wants to do with the rest of his life now around awareness and just living your life to the fullest. So. Um, couldn't thank Brett enough for coming and sharing his story, which is which is really an incredible one. Also, um, make sure you listen to the podcast first, and then after you do, go and check out Attacking Life on Stan. It's uh, it's it's a really cool documentary that Brett and his mate put together, and is doing some really cool things in the Australian film industry. So, um, thanks so much to Brett again, and hope you enjoy the show. Hi, fam. It's Dylan's mum, Deborah. This is Dylan Friend. He gives you a back rub. This is you know going well, Brian. Oh, special. Get comfortable, uncomfortable. Mm. Just keep showing up and find a way. Cam was so nervous he couldn't swallow water. Carrying a sheet of paper with six names and said, "Chief, we've got to cut these six blokes." Wow, shut up! I've just been barbed by a stingray, mate. I'm just yelling at him. Save my life! Save my life! Save my life! Thank you, thank you. I spent the last, I think it was a couple of weeks in jail. The deepest, darkest moments often bring about our biggest highs. You carry the putter around with you everywhere you go. <laughs> Depends who you ask. Yeah. Do you play golf? I played shitloads from my recovery. That's, oh, really? Yeah. I, I didn't play before. We're recording. Oh, my God, we're recording. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you played golf? Yeah, so I didn't play at all before I, like before the attack. And yeah. then because I couldn't surf or do anything like that, I was like, all right, I need something to fill in the time because I was – I was lucky I, I had heaps of support so I didn't have to worry about going to work or anything like that. And it was just like two and a half hours of rehab every day and then I'd have the rest of the day to like recover or mm. just fill in time. And I was like, what can I do? And one of my good mates was like, oh, I should just come and hit a few balls. So I went down the range with him, hit a few balls. And I was like, oh, maybe I can do this because it's, it's the only thing I could do so with my leg. So you didn't hurt? It didn't no, because so, I was in a straight leg brace at that stage. So, and it was my left leg, so and I'm right-handed, so it does limit it a little bit. Mm. And for the first little while, it's just these wild slices because okay. that's partly just how you swing when that's you're me. a yeah, cook that's, anyway. Uh, but. Oh, that's me, mate. No, I've been attacked by a shark. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just, that just happens. Um, what were you playing off? So what'd you get down to? Nine point eight. Oh fuck you! <laughs> that is so shit, man. Like, how do you? I had the time, and that's the thing. I I, I have the time, not really anymore, <laughs> but I, I had the time. So I I had heaps of time to practice, and that's why I haven't played much at all lately. Is because I hate being bad. It's the worst sport to be bad at. Oh, it's mate. It's it's a yeah. And, it is. Like I'm off, I'm off sixteen at the moment. Yeah. And with the that's, with, that's under a hole of shot. That's good. Don't 
don't try and butter me up, mate. It's fucking terrible. And that's, it's well, like, it's like the, I'm a 16 as well. It's like peak 16. It's not like I've been at 16 and I'm going down. It's like <laughs> yeah, it's I've hit 16. <laughs> it's like I'm not going any lower than that. And I've already blown back down to 17 now. But even since like having, um, you know, Max and stuff, and listeners, listeners would know this, but I'm not really um, – I'm not allowed to say I'm not allowed to play golf on the weekends now, but I choose not to play golf okay, on the yeah. weekends now because I like to spend time with my family. Of course. So it's a midweek thing. So it's like I, it's hard to get out midweek now. Mm. So I've sort of, to be honest, now just turned into like collecting putters. Yeah, so okay. that's where you've seen. Is that is that because that's what's going to improve the game and get you under 16? Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> it's like, I, I, you know, people think that you should spend money on – lessons or something. It's like, that is so stupid. Just go buy new gear. Yeah. It's obviously well. the gear that's not <laughs> yeah. making me a good golfer. So I've just got to get new clubs, new putters, uh, play no golf, don't practice, don't go to the range and just buy new putters and yeah. then hopefully I'll become play, a better play player. Play once a week and yeah. then hopefully the new and putter work. knocks yeah. a couple of shots so you, you off. My, my favourite golfer is the golfer that owns a collection of putters. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a brief sort of glimpse into me as a person mm. five minutes this morning. I think I scared the fuck out of you this morning coming in a little bit hot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've got some things going on at yeah. the moment, as you can tell. And the putter <laughs> collection is where I'm it. sort of focusing all my energy um, hey. and my son. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Mate, how are you? Thank you so much for coming in this morning. I really Good. appreciate it. Um, you have an incredible story. I can't wait to just chat with you, pick your brain. And you're off to Europe this afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, it actually worked out really well to come down and do this. Um, came down to speak at the uh, graduation ceremony yesterday and there was a small window this morning. So when, when I got the message that like maybe to, to come on and do something. I was like, all right, this is the time. <laughs> this is awesome. the times I worked out. So yeah, stoked to be here. Stoked so to, fortuitous. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. It was funny, Darcy and I were chatting this week. So Darcy is our producer and um, we've been working hard on really getting some cool guests. And um, I was like, man, we just need to start talking to some more like inspirational people. Darcy comes in. He's like, man, I've got someone. I saw, and I'm a big guy on Stan and Netflix. Like I watch everything, but at the moment I haven't had the time. We watched your... Uh, what do you call it? Exclusive? Like, what's it? How does it work with Stan? Is it? So they did you make it? And yes, so I'm we, interested in we that made actually. it, and then they they bought the rights to it. Yeah, so cool. it is a Stan exclusive, which is different to a Stan original. Original, right? Yeah, so, so it's exclusively original, on the platform. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So an original is one that they'll make, make themselves it. and produce themselves, and. An exclusive is one that someone has made and then taken it to them and then they put it on the platform. There are other ones which are not exclusive, which might be on a few different platforms as well. So that's kind of how it works. But everyone, it's a strange world. Like I've learned a lot about it in the last couple of years um, in, in making this, being the first feature that I've made and the first feature that um, the guy that I made it with, Sam, that he made as well. It's a whole world that's very, very confusing. But everyone always thinks that it's like royalty-based and the amount of views you get leads to how much money you make off it, but it's literally they just buy the rights off it for a certain amount of years. So it's on stand for four years, which is cool that it's got a home in Australia for four years and now it's there. I can not have to, not have to worry awesome. about it. Yeah, it's a, Mate, to be honest, it's such an interesting like world, isn't it? Like, it is. And I've, I, I don't know a lot about the Netflix stand. I do a lot more in the podcasting side, but it's crazy to the fact that, and this is completely off topic of where we're going today, but <laughs> even the fact now where with TV shows, people go like with the Netflix originals and Stan originals and these things, people think, oh, Stan go out and make them and Netflix go out and make them. It's actually not that. People make them, sell them to the people. That's how they get them on the platform. Yeah. So it's it's a crazy world. It's like it the is. same as TV though. Yeah. Channel 10, Channel 7, they don't own those shows. They're just companies making them that then sell them to those networks. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's it's a bizarre world. There's, <laughs> I, I feel like I've only just dipped the toe into yeah. it, <laughs> just just with one. And I mean, it's something I'd like to do more of in the future. So I've been trying trying to learn as much as possible about it all. But I still think it's 
there's a reason why the people in the industry have been in there for so long. Because yeah. I think once you grasp it and you know how it works, then you you kind of was you're it set. was the filmmaking thing ever a passion before this happened? Like was it not something- not to this extent? It's something I've always been interested in. Yeah. Uh, like uh, as a surfer, surf films and like doing short stuff that you put on like Vimeo and YouTube and stuff has always been like part of surfing. And there's different websites that you'd love yeah. to have your videos featured on. So it's something I've always enjoyed, but never really thought that I'd be into it to this capacity and I was saying to Darcy just before that the how it sort of came about was I was doing a bunch of speaking and I reached out to my mate Sam who I'd done videos with before just through the surf shop that I was working at Mm. and I was like can we put together like a five minute kind of like a context setter for when I speak just so people kind of get a little bit of a grasp of the story and it's it's kind of impactful and draws people in and we we set out we made we spent a couple months made this five minute video and then we showed it to a few people and everyone was like, man, you, you can't leave it at five minutes. You got to do, yeah. do more than this. And then five minutes extended to 20 minutes. And then like same thing, people like there's more story to tell. So we sat back and we're like, all right, well, if we're going to do it, how are we going to approach it? Is it going to be a feature? And then that kind of just it threw us in their head first. Like we, we knew nothing about it and probably had three or four different iterations of like, okay, I think we've got what we're doing. And then we show it to someone, they're like, no, almost, but do it differently. <laughs> yeah. So you start again and and make make those adjustments and changes. But from there, it's like, I, I love the process. As frustrating as it could be, like it's a three-year process to make this film. Wow. From, from those first conversations to having it on stand. So it was a long time, but it was really cool to learn so much about it. And like that's, I, I think it's something that we can kind of, hang our hat on in in a way because for first time filmmakers to have something up on stand that's it's unbelievable it's yeah it's pretty incredible that like we had high ambitions for it we wanted it to be on something like that but as first you can't expect that when there's no proof of evidence of what you've done in the past so it's cool to see it like the, the first day it was uploaded on the stand to see it on the tv it's like it's mm. it's real it's pretty cool oh man it's a credit to you and a credit to your story as well because it's an unbelievable unbelievable one and make sure you check it out guys attacking life didn't even drop the name of it um on stand, it's a it's an awesome film, um, and it, just on it because I don't want to ruin it before people watch it. I'm going to ruin it today because we're going to talk about it. But <laughs> I love the way it jumps around as well. It's not just like a linear sort of story; like it just comes in. I was like, what? At some stage, I was watching like, oh fuck, we're in a different time. Yeah. But it's like cool how it goes bits and pieces. Anyway, you watch it, you see what you like. But today we'll chat about it. Um, Brett, I said, man, absolutely honored to have you in today. Tell us a little bit about yourself for those who haven't seen Attacking Life, um, heard you speak yet. Uh, how have you come to be a filmmaker? Well, featured yeah, film. That's yeah, your own film. <laughs> yeah, um, that is one of the harder questions to answer. I think because it's like it's kind of give us your whole life story yeah. in, in such a short short I'll period of time. I uh, there's a very short way I use to kind of introduce myself, which is just as a surfer, a shark attack survivor, and a storyteller. Like they're three separate phases of my life, which are kind of in one way linked to an important thing that I'm doing at the time. Like my for a majority of my life, like all I cared about was that first stage surfing. Like I started surfing when I was 11, which is pretty late in surfing terms. There's kids these days that start when they're like three. <laughs> so I started late, but surfing was just the best sport for me ever. I I played a bunch of different sports when I was younger, but the year I picked up surfing when I was 11 years old, I gave up all those other sports and just wanted to focus on that. And from an early age had this dream because professional surfing something that you look at it's really really cool and I was like I want to be one of those guys and there was probably a bit of a gap between talent and ambition there but as I kind of progressed through life and always had this dream I was like okay I wasn't really getting the results when I was younger but 
I because I started later, I kind of knew the development would probably come later. And that also came when I got a little bit smarter at surfing heats and stuff, which is what you need to do to make it as a pro. Mm-hmm. But that first stage was just like everything surfing. I was like, I want to be a professional. If that doesn't work out, I want to be in the industry somewhere. Like my first job was as a surf coach, um, like own my own surf school, managed the surf show. When I finished school, I went and did surfing study. Like everything was involved in surfing. I just knew that that was going to be a huge part of my life. And that's how things were going up until like late 2015, which is when the competitive surfing started coming along. And I started to get some really good results and kind of reached this point where I was like, well, I don't know if I have the talent really to make it as as a professional. Like it is as much as I wanted to make it as a professional, I was pretty real with it. Like there's only 34 guys that get to surf on the world tour. So it's a tough thing to make it as a professional. But I got to this point where I was like, I, I'm feeling the best I've ever felt when it comes to to surfing heats and I want to do everything I can to try and make it as a professional. And the, the main thing that I wanted to do was just to dedicate one year of my life and putting all these eggs in this one mm-hmm. basket of trying to make that work because I didn't want to look back when I was, you know, like 40, 50 years old and some like crusty old surfer <laughs> dude who's like, I wonder if I could have made it when I was 22 years old. So I was like, this is the year that I'm going to give it my all. And that 2016 was going to be the year that that was going to happen. Um, and things were going pretty good, training, um, working on like the competitive surfing, like working on my body in the gym, like doing all these things that I'd never done before because I was like, I'm just going to leave – no stone unturned and things going well up until March. And that's when stage two of my story comes in, which is mm. the shark attack. Before we get to the shark attack, I'm actually really interested because when you said before, oh, you're a very humble um, man. I, I don't want that to people to miss on this. When you said you weren't talented enough, like I've seen vision of you surfing, you're an unbelievable surf, you're doing airs, like this shit that you're talking top echelon. You could have been, <laughs> you, you were a very, you are a very good surfer. Um, what is the difference between you were saying before about learning how to surf competitively versus surfing, you know, on your own instinct and things like that? Like, is there strategy in the heat? Like, I'm sure there is, but what's the strategy in heats and those sorts of things that you're trying to learn in that yeah, later stage? It's it is like heat surfing and competitive surfing is very very different. The the hard thing about surfing, my dad has always had the best explanation of this, where he says that surfing has to be one of the hardest sports to do competitively because it's not only you're surfing against someone. So picture a game of tennis, right, where you're playing against someone and there's that that matchup of skill and ability. Except if it's tennis, it's like the court is always moving around and you've got to go catch the court. <laughs> so it's like there's all these extra things that kind of add to why it is so difficult. So it's, it's strategy in knowing how to get waves and pace yourself in the heat and build your scores and, and do that strategically against the person that you're surfing against. And when you're a young, like just a stoked young frothing surfer, all you care about is catching waves. And that's what I was always like. I'd go out in the heat and I'd just catch a hundred waves. I'd just <laughs> catch every single thing that broke. I didn't really care too much about getting the best waves in the heat. I just wanted to catch a lot because that's I enjoyed surfing. But that's not really the best way to win heats because there's only your two best scores that count towards your total. So if you're on the two best waves of the heat, then good chances are you're probably going to win that heat, yeah, wow. especially if you're surfing well. So they're just things that you don't realize when you're younger because just your like your love for the sport kind of overtakes the like the mindset that it, you kind of need to do well competitively, yeah. which is what makes it really, really hard. But I, I always think if I knew what I now know about surfing heats back when I was like 16 – it probably would have made a world of difference as far as how I competed and yeah. probably the results as well. 
Does it, um, you know, in a stupid way, but like the thing that comes to my mind is uh, Point Break with Keanu Reeves. You know, at the end when like, is it is that the movie where that yeah, he yeah. like starts paddling over to that wave that's like not existent yet, yeah. but he just like feels the ocean and knows that it's coming? That's is that, it. a, yeah, is yeah. that sort of a thing that happens? <laughs> well, uh, it's not <laughs> that. I think that speaks to like not the, in the Hollywood sense, but not, like not you in know. Hollywood sense. <laughs> yeah. That's I don't know. I've I've heard some great stories about people who ha- who tell this really spiritual story of surfing, and they're like, I, there's a really good story about um, Clyde Eichau who. His brother Eddie Aikau is one of the the great big wave surfer and surfs in Waterman in Hawaii, and he died um, trying to save people out in like one of the the crossings in the channel um, over in Hawaii. And they hold a big wave event for him every year. And his brother Clyde was telling him was telling this story about how he's surfing in the event this year. He's not the most talented guy out of all those guys at all, but there's this story where he sees this turtle in the water as they're sitting out there and it, it goes like deeper in the lineup. And he's like, I'm just going to follow it. Cause it felt to him like the spirit of his brother was telling him to go over there. So he followed his brother, his, yeah, his brother over there, this turtle, and then got the wave that made him win the event. Oh. So there are like the spiritual things. I, I don't think it's like that when you're surfing, like a local event down at okay. <laughs> like a yeah, local beach. Time and a place. There's time and a place. Um, I also think that Hawaiians are far more spiritually connected to the ocean. And that's something I learned when I was over in Hawaii doing the paddle for the film. But there is part of it, knowing where the good waves are, knowing which waves you want um, as far as like what's going to offer up the best like wave for, for performance and surfing heat. So that that is a little bit of it, but it's not so much like the spirits bringing you to a certain spot in the lineup. That's, way to, that's bursting my bubble a little bit. I was hoping we we're going to go down that, <laughs> yeah. you know, that real weird path. Uh, we'll get into, you know, the incident in a minute, but your relationship with the ocean prior to the major incident versus after the incident, has that changed? Because for me, even, you know, we're chatting sort of off air before and I didn't want to tell the Bondi story again of me drowning at the beach because I tell it every time we talk about the ocean. But I am a massive love lover of the ocean. Like I love the water. When, you know, I was feeling really anxious in Sydney when I used to live there, I'd always just go down to the beach, put my head in the water, go under the waves, feel like the waves are like cleansing me in a way. And like I just do have this special thing with it that I really love and I wish I was more confident in the water than, than I am. I didn't grow up around the ocean. It's something that, you know, I was telling you before, like when Max gets older, like I'd love to make him, you know, like a nipper or something that can go down and really be connected with the water a bit more. Like did you do you find you've had that relationship with the ocean? Yeah, it's the ocean's always been a constant in in my life. I I, I grew up and I I did nippers. So yeah. it was something that I was always in and around the ocean. Before I started surfing, I was always in the water. Like I was bodyboarding before then. So it was always a big part of my life. Living close to the beach in a small seaside town, you're you're there. Like that's you can't live in a place like that and not be in the water. So it's always been a big part. And I guess to answer the question of like how has that relationship changed, you know, between pre and, and post attack would be, I guess it's that thing where you you don't realize how much you care about something until you lose it. Mm-hmm. Because for the time when I wasn't in the water, when, you know, I didn't think that I was ever going to get back in the water, then it, it does make you miss it. And I think there's, there's something about that experience that makes you appreciate it a little bit more. My relationship with surfing is different now. I don't surf competitively anymore, but my relationship with the ocean has probably improved, which I think is interesting because my sister's approach towards the attack and everything is that she she's the older sister, so protective older sister. She always saw me in the ocean and she knew that the ocean was always like it was my home. And and from her point of view, when that all happened, it was she felt like the ocean betrayed me in a way. Mm. And 
I didn't really see it like that because it was just an isolated incident. But her relationship with looking at my experience from the outside was she thought it would be really difficult to get back in the water after something like that had happened. But for me, it was more just I missed it. Like the first time I got back in the ocean after the attack, it was the best feeling ever. Yeah, right. See, I would have thought that like I, it would have been hard. Let's mm. let's talk about the attack if you're happy to. Yeah. 2016? Yep. 30th of March. 30th of March. Yeah. I don't have anything on that date that I was trying to think about, but my birthday's on the 16th, so, ah, so 14 yeah. days after. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the, the two-week anniversary of yeah. your, <laughs> your 23rd mate, that birthday. That actually makes it crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you'd mention that. That's wild. It's crazy. <laughs> like, this is the this is the turtle in the ocean. Right. Like, <laughs> this is, I tell you, man, the ocean does fucked up things. It even works outside of the ocean in Richmond. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm ruining the show. Um, yeah, let's talk about my two-week anniversary of the 23rd yeah. birthday. <laughs> yeah. So I woke up that morning and I was just thinking about wishing you a two-week anniversary birthday. <laughs> um, okay, let's, let's be serious. Um, I, I often hear from people where they'll be like, that day, did you know it was going to be you know, an interesting or special day. And apart from it being the two-week anniversary of your birthday, there was nothing really <laughs> too special about yeah. about that day. Um, I think when you look at a day like that through the lens of what were some, some things I could have looked out for that could have told me that it was going to be a different day, you're going to notice some things. Um, it's either the day where nothing happens and then that comes out of the blue or you could look back and you notice a, a thing or two where you're like, oh, maybe I should have taken that as a, as a sign. But... I guess that's just the lens that you look at these things through. Um, it, it for me was a regular day, except for it wasn't really a regular day. I'd had a bad day at work because the night before the shop that I was working at, the surf shop had been broken into. Mm. So my day was spent kind of dealing with the break-in, talking to police, cleaning up glass, doing all that sort of stuff. And the reason I went for a surf that afternoon is because I was like, had a shit day, need to feel better. What makes me feel better is surfing. So was driving home that afternoon. Um, I knew I'd have enough time to get home because I lived about 45 minutes away from where the shop was. So I was driving home, called my good friend Joel, and I was like, hey, I'm just going to go for a surf out Bombo, which is my local beach. Um, I knew there was going to be waves there. So I was like, I'll go down there, called Joel to go for a surf just because it's nice to go surfing with someone. Um, I specifically called him 45 minutes before I was going out there because he's notoriously late for stuff. <laughs> he... um. He's that person. Uh, everyone's got a friend like this. I don't know. Are you this friend? I think I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's always either late or they just don't show up. So so that's Joel. And that's why I called him with plenty of notice to go surfing. Um, and he was like, oh, I'm about to go for a swim at the river, but might go for a surf. So I was like, all right, cool. I'll see you down there. Got to the beach that afternoon. Really nice afternoon, actually. It's starting to get a little bit cooler that time of year, especially sort of where where I live, like starting to be colder in the afternoons where usually the surf is better because of that for, for some reason. But went out there, was enjoying a few nice little waves. Even though I called Joel 45 minutes before, he still rocks up half an hour late. And so <laughs> he eventually comes out after about half an hour and we're both just sharing a few waves together. I was telling him about the break-in, talking about the day I'd had, just catching up. And we were we decided to surf probably about 200 meters down the beach from where everyone else was, mm. uh, mainly just to get a few uncrowded waves. And I knew the waves were a little bit better there, but everyone tends to just congregate right up in the northern corner. So I was like, we'll go to surf down the beach. And it was just us. So we were sharing waves just one after the other, having a good time. Um, Joel catches a wave, like he gets a pretty long one down the beach and he's, he's like on his way sort of paddling back out. And I was sitting there just reflecting on the day, like kind of thinking, well, for how bad today has been, 
at least I've been able to come for a surf, been able to chat to a mate. Like I'm feeling heaps better than what I did when I got that phone call at 2am about the shop break in. So I'm having these thoughts, looking back towards the beach, like again, not lovely afternoon. This is like the picture that I have is looking back is like the, the beautiful, like the mountains behind there, sun's just starting to set a few nice mm. clouds. And then from like out of nowhere, something hits me from my right side and I had no idea what it was, but it just hit me with so much force that it throws me off my board. And I land in the water and before I can like look around and see what it was or where it came from or anything like that, I look down and there's this shark biting my left leg. And that moment where like the, the reality of the situation, like the enormity of what's happening where that sinks in is just like, you almost like zoom out and it's like time stops. There's an interesting thing that happens because in, in that moment where like you're frozen, it's like the freeze part of the fight, flight or freeze like response that a lot of people have. And you, you, spoke, you speak to most people who've been through, I don't know, any, anything, say like a, a car accident or something like that, where people will always talk about that moment where time slows down. That's, that's that freeze response. And it's an interesting response because a lot of people think that freeze is like giving up or, or giving into the situation. But I found out later on, it's actually just like an information gathering exercise. It's actually fight or flight on hold mm-hmm. while you're taking the information to then make the best decision after that. So that's why people can have really vivid memories of these things. And for me, the vivid memories are like the feel of the shark skin, which is really rough, like sandpaper. Um, there's the complete absence of sound. It's like, I can't hear the water splashing. I can't hear my, like, I know I'm screaming for help in this moment based on what Joel said later on, but I have no recollection of that. But then there's the, like, looking into the shark's eye, like, and there's just, you're looking, the visual of it is definitely the most striking of, of this recollection because there's something about that moment where you realize like your worst nightmares, are, it's happening. Like you're, you're in it and there's, there's nothing that you can really do in that moment. The, the thing about, about sharks that I always make sure that I say is that you can't argue with them. You can't tell them to stop. You can't reason with them. <laughs> like as a surfer, this is your worst nightmares coming to fruition right in front of you. And there's nothing that you can do about it. So these, like this information gathering exercise is happening. And then you're like, all right, well, what do I do now? And the first thing that I do is I click into that fight response because everyone's like, punch the shark, punch the shark. Like that's what you're supposed to do in a situation like this. And I have that thought and the, the natural enemy to the punch is water. So, <laughs> so I go to punch it and it's just ineffective. Yeah. And sorry, just, to, is it still attached to it's this still, So it's just grabbing onto my leg. Um, there's, it's not like thrashing me about it's, it's like, it's grabbing me and, and kind of just holding me. So I go to punch it. That doesn't work. Kind of like freeze again. I'm like, well, now what? There's only one response left, which is flight. And this is where I make the biggest mistake that I make that day, which is to pull away from the shark. And that might sound like the common thing that you do. Like, I mean, if, if your hands on the table and a spider crawls across it, if you're afraid of it or whatever, you, you're probably going to pull away from it. And that's, that's what I do. I like, I pull away from the shark. The reason that this is a mistake is because when you do that, it's not like the shark lets go and it's like, all right, off you go. You obviously don't want to be bitten right now. It holds onto that leg. And as you pull away from it, it just separates that large chunk from your body. And I immediately say to myself, just don't look down. Like I, I know what's happened and I, I don't want to look at what that's like. And there's two reasons for that. <laughs> One of them is to not go into shock and to not lose more blood than what I'm already about to. But I now have the window of escape. Like flight is in full effect now. Mm-hmm. So 
I focus on trying to make the most of that opportunity and I just start swimming towards the shore as, as hard as I can. And I only get maybe 20 meters further in and I am just focused on getting the shore. I'm just like staring at the sand, just being like, I need to get there, I need to get there, I need to get there. And I have this thought like just come through out of nowhere. I'm like, what if it comes back a second time? Mm. That is the most terrifying thought that I've had because that's <laughs> it's so harrowing to have that thought because you, it's, you don't see it around you you're not sure where it is and i'm like okay well maybe i'll have a look and see if it's coming back and i look over my shoulder to see it actually approaching again like just see this water kind of moving towards me and my instinct is like you just put your hands out to try and stop it and my right hand i'm right handed so my right hand's got better aim than my left um right hand lands square on its nose my left hand so it did come back it did come back um my left hand goes into its mouth and i end up pulling it out really quick because you don't you don't want to leave your hand in there but to demonstrate how sharp their teeth are obviously like what it did to my leg is one thing but i nicked a few teeth on on the way out and lost there's like a chunk of skin that it ripped out there and like there's a couple teeth marks down the side of my wrist there and it's it's just like bumping it that's their teeth are razor razor sharp which is an impressive thing about them, but mm. not really how you want to take in how impressive a shark is by yes. by finding out firsthand. But there's this moment where it's pushing me through the water and I'm like, all right, what, what do I do now? Because I've already escaped from it once and I've had to sacrifice a large chunk of my leg to do so. Like, what am I going to have to sacrifice this time? So I'm kind of looking around being like, what do I do? And there's like, there's a split second. Like This might seem like it happened over it where I'm like getting pushed through the water. I'm like, hmm, what do I do now? But it's like, it's just reaction, reaction, reaction. I, I don't think I really made any properly conscious decisions this whole time. It's all just happening. So I, I see this wave approaching and I'm my old, like my natural reaction is like, okay, I think if the wave gets to us and has enough power, if I push a shark to one side, hopefully the wave's got enough power to push me towards the shore, which is where I want to go. And hopefully just pushes the shark away from me. So... The wave hits us, I push it to the left and then it, like I'm just getting smoked underwater, like just front flips, all sorts, like I'm losing control over my body at that point too because I'm losing energy. And I get pushed in quite a way because by the time I, I surface, I'm actually able to stand up. It's only about waist deep. And I look up again and luckily don't see the shark coming back a third time. I actually see Joel um, paddling towards me as, as fast as he can. And that's the best sight that you can see in a situation like that um, for... <laughs> For what I said about him earlier about being late and yeah. <laughs> and and not being the most reliable, he's, he's definitely on time in in that moment. He gets to me and he's just like, "How bad is it?" And I didn't look down, but I was like, "It's not good." <laughs> and I can tell based on like he's looked down and he can see all the blood in the water. He can't see my leg yet, but he he knows it's pretty bad. And I didn't have my surfboard then because when the shark hit me the first time, its teeth cut through my leg rope. So when I got thrown off, my board's somewhere else. I have no idea where it is. Mm. And Joel puts me on his board, takes me into the beach, drags me up the sand, and he runs off to get some help, which leaves me laying just on the beach by myself. And I still haven't looked down at my leg yet. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how how bad is this actually? And I have a lot of pain in my stomach at that time where I'm kind of questioning if I've been bitten there. Like, I'm like, have I? But I still don't want to look down because I don't want to get a glimpse of my leg. And I'm kind of like, okay, is this serious? I've been bitten by a shark. I know that much. I know based on the fact that by the time I got back to the beach that I had no energy because I couldn't even lift my arms up. Like Joel's dragged me out the beach. I'm like, it's pretty bad. I probably lost a lot of blood. And then as I'm trying to like collect my thoughts and figure out what's happened, there's this like deep overwhelming thought, which is 
really, really profound. Like I, I still haven't perfected the way to explain this moment properly because I don't think it's one that humans are meant to explain, but mm. there's just this deep thought that comes over me, which is like, is this what it feels like to die? And I don't know why that thought leads me there, but I think it's just a question that you have to ask yourself in a moment like that to figure out how bad it is. And I had no idea how close I was to death in that moment. Like I... I found out later on that that pain that I mentioned in my stomach was actually my organs starting to shut down due to blood loss. So I was, I was incredibly, incredibly close to death. But the strange thing about how that, the reality of how close I was to death and what I told myself, which is something didn't feel right about that moment. Again, this is another thing I, I still haven't quite perfected how to explain, but just the fact that something didn't feel right meant that I could be like, okay, well, what do I, what do, I do now? And there wasn't much to do other than just breathe and stay present and that's kind of where my luck started to change because this is the the luck part of the story that I talk about where I went from the unluckiest I've been in my life, like the odds of being attacked by a shark, I've tried to do some research on it to figure out what the number is, but it's anywhere between one in 3.6 and one in 11.5 million. That ranges in severity um, from like a, a bump <laughs> for, yeah. for some people all the way to a fatality. So that that's kind of the numerical odds somewhere in there. But the best way to describe it is it's like losing, like, like winning the lottery, but in the wrong direction. So it's like everyone else wins the lottery, but you, you're the person that doesn't win it. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the unluckiest I've been in my life by far. But everything after that moment is the luckiest I've been. So from where the shark bit me, it missed my femoral artery by two millimeters. And the femoral artery is a major blood supply to your leg. So if that had been severed at all, I, the, I wasn't making it to the beach. I was lucky that Joel was there, obviously. Um, I was lucky that he paddled towards me because as a surfer, I think you would love for that to be your response, that you want to be brave and you, like, you know what's happening. He knew there was a shark. He knew the danger he was heading towards. Oh, and as a surfer, you would love for that to be your response. But if he turned around and paddled towards the beach because he knew the danger was, that was there, I, I couldn't fault him for that because that's a perfectly human reaction as well. So I was lucky that he paddled towards me, incredibly lucky that he was there that day, lucky that he was out, out there in the water. But the person that he ran off to get help from on the beach was his partner, now his wife, Aggie. And this is the first time I've ever seen Aggie on the beach watching Joel surf. Um, she just decided to go down that afternoon because they were going to go to the river, but then Joel was like, I want to go for a surf. So she was like, okay, I'll come sit on the beach. First time I've ever seen her on the beach watching him surf. And... Aggie being the first person that Joel told about it, she immediately was the one that called the ambulance and, and coordinated all of that. And she's the best person to do it. So she is an intensive care nurse, like incredibly qualified to know exactly what I needed. So it wasn't just like a, hey, we're at the beach and someone's been bitten by, like she knew exactly what to tell them. She told them what they needed. She told them what, like, she was like, we're going to need a helicopter. We're going to, yeah. like, she knew all of that stuff to tell them. So, Lucky that she was there. As all this is happening, there's another guy that's walking along the beach whose name's John, taking a walk that he can't explain why he was there. He was like, I haven't been to the beach in months. I just decided to go that afternoon. John, by the time Joel runs back to me, Joel's like screaming for his attention. And John's like, okay, there's something serious. And he's, he's walking over there. And by the time he gets there, Joel's like, I need help. I need help. This guy's been bitten by a shark. And John's like, great, I'm, I'm a nurse. I can help out here. So off-duty nurse, intensive care nurse, Joel being there, the fact that it missed my femoral artery. I think there's so many ways where that story could end on the beach. Like 99.99% probably 
mm. like of the time that ends in tragedy. But for some reason, all of those things happening, like one after the other, exactly as I needed them, that that's kind of what I suppose leads to me being alive and leads to this story being one that is good to tell rather than a tragedy. And I think also when it comes to to sharing the story, it's something where like it's it's not hard for me to want to share the story as well because like it it would be difficult for me to go through that and experience all of that luck and all that good fortune and afterwards just kind of hold on to the story for myself. Yeah. There's kind of something within that that makes me be like, well, if I have been gifted this after everything that happened, then I feel like it's my duty to share it to try and make the most of of you know what could easily be a bad situation so they caught they tie all the tourniquets they stem the blood flow helicopter comes all of that stuff they get me to hospital incredibly lucky to get off the beach that afternoon um i think a lot of people think that's kind of the end of the story there like there's the relief when you you get airlifted from the beach but for me that's kind of just the first little chapter, chapter. yeah before we go on to the next chapter like we spoke about it earlier, but just that, like, I know I'm getting a bit woo-woo here, but I get a bit deep on it. Like, the whole thing of, like, the ocean, the turtle, there's a bit <laughs> yeah. of that going on, like, do you know what I mean? Like, just all those things that are there, like, it's just crazy how it just worked in one motion. Like, I know that it, it went from a really bad event, as you said, but worked so perfectly to make things happen, and mm. it's pretty special, like. It is special. Way, I, I don't want to glorify the shark incident. No. It's, it's sort of like worked out incredibly well, hasn't it? it? It has. And depending on who you are, I think everyone wants to find a reason for things happening. And whether you believe in like luck or fate or good fortune or if you're religious or whatever it is, think people will always want to find a reason for why, like why it happened in the first place. Why did I have all the good luck? Why am I here today? All, the, all of those sorts of things are valid questions that – I think just sometimes don't really have an answer. Like I feel like life is just this this chaos of randomness that kind of just happens and occurs and it's just kind of like something will happen and you respond to it. I don't know how people can reason with things. Like if to say that something happens for a reason, then it's hard to say that the bad thing should happen for a reason as well. And that over time, I don't know, maybe, maybe there is meaning and – and there is significance to to these events, but I think I've stopped trying to find reasons yeah. for why things have happened because it's 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 just, it just something. Happened. Yeah, it's just occurred. I and, don't like that saying that things happen for a reason. Like, yeah. I actually hate that saying. <laughs> that people use it in the weirdest ways, and I I like to say it's not what happens; it's how you react to it. Yeah. So things just happen. Yeah. It's not for a reason. But it's then what happens next yeah. after it. And obviously your story is a testament to that. And it's another thing as well that I heard the other day that I loved. It was saying something like life comes at you, not for you. So just like things are happening at us all the time. Things are just coming at us. They're not for a reason, but the reason is what we do with it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's a big part of it too. I mean, the, there's a certain perspective that you can gain from incidents like this that it's not like you wake up in hospital and you're like all right the bad things happen this is great look at how much opportunity like these things happen in retrospect when you've been through the challenge and you you've got to go through that adversity first. You, you see the value in that adversity but yeah i think you're right as far as the the whole idea that things happen for a reason it's but again people just like to grasp onto something like yeah. we as humans we struggle to live in a world where there are no answers for something and that's why everything 
I guess that's why people are so divided in a lot of different contexts because you have to either you have to nail your flags to like one master whether it's whether it's here or there and what, that doesn't always have to be political like it can be in your beliefs and and how you look at life as well but yeah I I, I feel like we can only form our own perspective based on our own experiences as well so as much as I can share this story for myself people aren't going to really understand the true meaning of it until they can reflect on their own adversity, like their own version of that shark attack where they'll see the value in it. Um, and that's something that took me a little while to realize because I think when you set out to share the story and to help people, there's a part of you that just wants to create the maximum amount of, of good impact that you can. But something I learned from speaking to um, Craig Harper, I was on his podcast a while ago and he was like, mate, you could speak to a thousand people in a room. And he's like, realistically, if you do a really good job, maybe, you know, 995 of them are going to walk out of there and go, that guy was really good. I love listening to that. You might have five people that are like, nah. <laughs> but he's like, you, you got to kind of account for these numbers. Yeah. But he goes, out of that 995 people, not many are realistically going to go home and make a change to their life. But he's like, all you can hope is that you've created enough of an impact so when they do need that information or they do need that perspective, then they can draw on your experience and try to apply that to the situation that's in front of them. And that's that's when they gain the true value from it. It's not necessarily from- Have it on. Yeah, it's not necessarily from someone listening to the podcast now and being like, wow, they can think it's an inspirational story and stuff, but it's not until they need the information that it's going to be truly valuable to them. For sure. No, I completely agree with that. And it's like happened to me more than countless times in my life. Like yeah. especially young males, we think we fucking know everything. Yeah. And we hear these stories and people tell us things. We go, yeah, yeah, sweet man. Like I, I know until yeah. it happens to you. <laughs> yeah. And then you start like actually rec recollecting on all the things you learn. You go, fuck, I wish I listened to that. Yeah. Like, all those times ago. Definitely. Um, KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. I was going to ask you as well, with the, the shark before, you said that it hit you, it bumped you on your left side or right, right side. side. Yeah. So it didn't hit, it didn't bite you, it just no. smashed you and then bit your leg. Yep. That is right. So, so it, it's, is that like a normal thing? Is that it, it is, um, depending on the shark. Um, from from what I found out afterwards, but essentially, I mean, sharks are curious. Um, is probably one way to say it. But they, because they don't have hands, they can't figure out what things are by touching them off or anything like that. So, um, the the two, I'll give you two examples of shark attacks. So when it comes to great whites, they they lead to a lot of fatalities because that first hit is often a bite um, where they'll try and they'll usually hit it with a lot of force and that that initial bite will often sever an artery, especially in surface and bodyboard is in, in a leg, which will um, cause a lot of damage. My my one was a, a bull shark, which are generally a little bit more aggressive when you, when you look at different um, species, but that will 
figure out what it is with that initial impact, um, as, as far as I know. But then when it figures out what it is, that's when it will, it may bite a second time. And that that's why it came back a third time. And that's more common of a bull shark. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically the, the, the speed at which these things move and how good they are at what they do is, is crazy. Like it, that's one thing when, when I talk to people about sharks is to make sure that and, and this is something that's shown up in my story a lot is it, it's not something when I reflect on the attack and everything that happened to me, it would be easy to look at it as a negative situation, which which it is, but to hold a lot of malice towards sharks. And that's something that I've always shied away from because I've always respected sharks. As a surfer, like you, you kind of know what environment you're walking into every time you, you go in the ocean. And that's something that I've always been aware of. And that can't change regardless of, of what's happened. But I think the experience itself and knowing how good they are at what they do, I think is probably added to that respect that I have for them. Um, because you, you don't, you don't realize how, in, how efficient, how incredible they are. Like I, if I can encourage you to do one thing and maybe add this to your list of things that you, you want to challenge yourself with is, is swim with sharks. Cause seeing them move through the water is there's nothing else like it. Oh mate, I, I sound, sound stupid, but I'm sort of like obsessed with sharks. I follow this page called Juan Sharks. Have you yeah. seen it? Yeah, Juan yeah. Sharks. Yep. Um, it's weird that you follow that stuff, but I suppose now <laughs> you've got that sort of connection with them. And yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by by sharks. Like I, again, it's not like I wouldn't love to go in there and pat one of them, but I, <laughs> it's just the marvel of like how beautiful they are but how fucking scary and dangerous they are as well yeah is just incredible like yeah. it's genuinely incredible um you know you were saying before about the shark and the size like do you know how, do they know how big it was like off that your the bite size were they able to measure how big the shark was they can they can estimate it uh they based on like the teeth marks that are left in the leg they can measure the distance between the teeth and they can roughly use that to, yeah. to estimate how big the shark was and they said it was between two and a half to three meters jesus christ that's a yeah. pretty big that's a big shark it is i <laughs> every time i speak i always do the frequently asked questions of a shark attack yeah. just to get those questions out, out of the, the way, way which okay. is, which yeah. is did it hurt how big was it and, and what was the scariest point yeah um, which chances are no two and a half to three meters. And like when I woke up in the hospital is the scariest part, but so the, it didn't hurt. No. So the, like along with that fight, flight or freeze response, you just didn't feel any like of it. adrenaline. Yeah. It's all adrenaline. So, and adrenaline's like a natural painkiller basically. So yeah, there's, there was no pain at the start, um, which I guess is something that helps you not look down at it. Mm. Um, but yeah, the size thing is something that always comes. It's always a question that gets asked and it's, it's funny because I think everyone's, when you say the word shark attack, the direction everyone's head goes straight away is to, to jaws. And because of that connection, everyone has an idea of how big sharks are supposed to be in a situation like this. Yeah. And I think everyone always is like, oh, it must be the size of a bus or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not <laughs> a whale. Like, Sorry to let yeah. you down, but it was only like two and a half to three meters, but that's big enough. They're fucking, well, when you think about it, like in the sense of like footy, like 200 centimeter ruckman. And a bit more. Yeah. That's pretty, yeah. pretty big. Well, yeah. <laughs> what, we, what would happen if you put a shark in the rock? Who knows? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, <laughs> we'll test that out. Last thing was I used to go up to WA a fair bit with my mate. One of my best mates up there lives in Port Hedland. So he's, sorry, he's from Port Hedland, then moved down to Dampier. We used to go on these fishing trips. And his dad is like a live by the ocean guy, like fishing boats. They go out for weeks on end. And I was lucky enough for a couple of years to go up there before COVID. Still want to get back up there and do it. Like it was a place where that's where, again, I was just like, the ocean just mm. is incredible how crazy it is. And I think this often goes with your story, but in the water, I don't know, again, not trying to educate people on sharks. And hopefully you know a bit more about this, but they said like, never panic 
when you see a shark because that shark knew you were there 15 minutes ago. Yeah. And he sort of said to me, which put me in a little bit of ease but also scared the fuck out of me. He's <laughs> yeah. like, never panic when you see a shark because if, if it wanted to get you, like it would get you yeah. without you even knowing it was there. The sh- yeah, that's the thing. The sharks that you have to worry about are the ones that you can't see. So there's no point in worrying about them essentially. But yeah. And that's something that I learned along the way. Like I Part of getting back in the water and surfing again for me was about I suppose educating myself on sharks and understanding why they do what they do, maybe understanding some of the conditions that led to the attack on on my day. Just just understanding why things happen again, it kind of leads to the answers that we like to have for mm. these things. But part of that was was talking to marine biologists and people who do know what they're talking about when it comes to this. And that was something that I found fascinating was was learning more about sharks. And one of the things that I won't ever forget that um, that Patrick Burke, the guy that I was talking to, the marine bio, is that he said that you have to keep in mind that most times you've ever entered the ocean, there's probably been a shark in some sort of close proximity. It's just you, you don't know about it. And that's not to say don't go in the water, but it's just to say it's the ocean and sharks live in the ocean. Um, it's, <laughs> it's just the reality. Mm. And when you think about that, and the you know the rare, the rare surfing, exactly yeah. and the rarity of attacks it is the way i rationalize it based on that information is that there are a lot of other things that you should probably be worried about ahead of sharks um i mean you look at statistically you should be a lot more afraid of getting behind the wheel of a car and i mean that that's one way of gaining a bit of comfort i guess when it comes to mm-hmm you know, feeling okay to go back in the water and to, to surf again for me personally. But the bigger thing was just educating myself on sharks, understanding them. And that that's, again, that's led to that respect that I do have for them. It, it, it's hard not for me to look at them as amazing creatures after everything I've been through with them. Yeah. How do you, do you do anything different now when you surf? Is there anything like, do you take out with you or anything like that? Or is it just being more aware and understanding? Um, wetsuit wise or like you know those is there anything like that there are there are different things that you can do um, different sort of mitigating strategies there's different like um, shark shields and bands that you can wear and different patterns you can put on the bottom of your board but I I don't know I I spent a lot of time surfing and not worrying about them before that and I don't think it should change the way in which I look at it which is maybe a little bit irresponsible but the, the biggest approach change that I have is now, if I am surfing and I don't feel 100% safe, I'm totally okay with telling myself that going Just in going, right. yeah, don't, yeah. Whereas before, I would have been like, what are don't you scared hero, of? Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> so it, that's something I'm 100% okay with. And I suppose that speaks to just my approach to surfing being a lot different too. It's not something that I do because I have to be out there and surf and get better all the time. I do it because I enjoy it. And if I'm not enjoying how it's making me feel by feeling slightly unsafe, then it's okay to get out. The um the the really incredible part of what I love from the show was when uh, I don't know when it was I can't remember exactly when it was but the might have been the biologist team came to you and said like you know trying to ask you about the shark trying to find out what breed it was and I I'm not sure if this legally that is but did you lie to them in a way to because you found out if it was a great white they were going to try and cull it or was it a bull yeah. shark they were going to cull it so so what how it works is they they thought that it was a great white. Um, 
based on what they could see, uh, but they they weren't one hundred percent sure, and they they came in to see me to be like, hey, we need some second secondary evidence from you in case you you know more than what we do. Um, we think it's a great white, but if not, let us know because if it's something else, then we'll have a look at certain culling strategies. And mm-hmm. I, I just the moment I heard that, I was like, that doesn't sit right with me at all. I don't want them to go and hunt and kill sharks just for something that's happened to me. Like it it sit it sat really unwell with me, and I I knew that it was. I wasn't 100% sure it was a bull shark at that stage because it was still really early and I hadn't really educated myself on it, but I knew it wasn't a great white, um, mainly just based on the shape and size of its head. But I mean, the, those behaviors of coming back a second time, which are characteristic of a bull shark and not a not a great white. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you could say I, I misled them, but <laughs> a big part of that, I, I never saw the, the I, I don't see any benefit in culling either. It's the, I mean, is it a bad shark or is it just a shark doing what a shark does? Like it's it's really hard to know that that does anything other than give people who grab onto the fear a little bit of peace of mind knowing that a shark's been killed. But I mean, the shark's in the ocean. <laughs> the The reality is like the, the way in which we look at that situation, it is kind of really slanted towards something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, like what, what, what sense is there in getting revenge on a shark that has bitten a human when it's really just doing what it does? Mm. And I, it's just not something that I, I felt I wanted to reflect this experience for me. So it was one of the, one of the things that, that came out. Um, my, one, this is actually a story that my, my dad's workmate loves to tell, but <laughs> he, um, so my, my parents had heaps of, interaction with with the media as as you kind of do after something like this and i was talking to my dad about it and we were talking about you know what type of shark it was we were talking about this specific thing and i was like i want to get the message out there that i don't want sharks to be culled or hunted or anything like that and my (laughs) my dad's mate he he was the one who was doing all the speaking. So he goes out in front of the media, like on the steps of, of the hospital. Go, he has all these cameras in his face and dad's standing next to him and he's like, he's going to talk because I'm, I'm a bit emotional. Yep. The guy goes, I just want to finish this off by by saying that Brett doesn't want to turn this into a shark cunt. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he goes... <sighs> His workmate is adamant that he's probably one of the only people that has used that word on yeah, live television. That's, that's away with incredible. It. That's very good. <laughs> very good. I like that bit of humor. Um, the one part that I am so intrigued about in your journey, and I apologize if I'm jumping to bits and pieces, but I think was it in the helicopter to the hospital, you had like a dream about already recovering from the, the incident? Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Talk me through that. Yeah. Um, so this this is a, a ketamine-induced dream. So yeah. that's the painkillers they use on the beach. Sure, um, sure. As I'm getting loaded on the, the helicopter, so I'm conscious on the beach the whole time until I get into the helicopter. Yeah. And that's obviously when they give me the strongest painkillers and that's why you kind of you go out then. Yeah. Um, there was a moment that happened just before I got on the helicopter where my mum found out because she was able to get to the beach just before I got airlifted. So there was a moment where she thought that she was going to be able to come on the helicopter and be with me, but then they found out the helicopter was too small and she wasn't able to come with me. And I remember her just being so distraught in that moment that it kind of, one of the last memories I had from being conscious was 
feeling like, oh no, I'm not going to have someone there with me and feeling really alone. Mm. And I get on the helicopter and I'm, I kind of fade into like this dream or whatever. And it's, it's very vague at the start. And I kind of am just coming in and out of consciousness where I'm, I'm like waking up in the helicopter and I can feel like this pain and it's like loud and you've got all the machines and like, for me, it's almost like there's just screaming going on all around you. And it's this really raw environment where it's like the reality, but then you'll like, you'll fade into this dream state and this dream starts developing in front of me where I wake up in hospital and I don't know any details of the, of the injury or anything like that, but there's, there's this kind of flow of like going through some sort of vague recovery where like I'm getting back up on my feet and it's, it's almost like this dream where you like, you get out of bed and you start walking and then you start like a running. Nike commercial or something. Ser- it's yeah. seriously something like that. And I, I go through all these different stages of recovery and, and getting back to this point of regaining so much more in my life. And it's a strange thing to explain because it's not like I knew that I wouldn't be able to surf or anything like that, but I get back to like this point of recovery, but then within this whole dream, like I keep snapping back to like the, like being in the helicopter and it's just like noise and loud and pain and all of this stuff. But then I wake up in hospital after going through this recovery dream and I'm like back at square one. And there's this like this brutal reality to waking up feeling like you've done all this work and you've been through this whole thing and then you're like back at square one mm-hmm. where I mean this is another one of those things where you can you can point to you can try and find an answer to why that happened but I think there was a certain amount of comfort waking up in hospital knowing that whatever was going to be ahead of me as far as recovery like I I had kind of in a way seen some sort of recovery before and I that wasn't going to tangibly help me but I think there was some part of that that just made me feel a little bit safer in kind of knowing that whatever was ahead of me I'd kind of been there before Mm. just like a confidence that you could get it done strangely without even knowing what it was exactly because it's not something I really talked about either it's not like I woke up and said to someone hey I just had this dream about yeah yeah, crazy Um, it was just something that I always felt within me that it was it was just there and I mean, you can probably put that down to the beauty of the painkillers, but... <laughs> oh, I think there's, yeah, there's definitely something in that. Yeah. Well, there 100% is. When you get to the hospital and you finally see the injury, I think that was like a massive part for me in um, in attacking life was when the injury you see it itself, like the photo of mm. the bite, if it was in a movie, you'd almost go, oh, they could have done a better job of making that a bit <laughs> realistic. Like it was so clean yeah um it, it you literally do see like a just a big mouth out of your leg yeah. like it's not it, it's you, you, yeah it's so clean it's weird <laughs> it's this is a hard thing to describe to describe in like podcast yeah, format it is. isn't so just, it to, just imagine <laughs> it just looks like yeah. if you've just like a three-year-old yeah drew, drew it, a shark that's attack what it bite. would look like well it's like i guess you see photos of people whose surfboards have been bitten and it's yeah. like the perfect mouth shape it was exactly like it was that. that but in my leg yeah and I, I didn't actually see that at the start. So I didn't see my leg until probably three weeks after the attack. Okay. Like that feeling within me right from the start of not looking down at my leg. Just kept not I just, looking down. I just didn't want to look down. And a big part of that I think was maybe not wanting to be shocked by it and not wanting to, to kind of be overwhelmed by it. But I think it wasn't going to do anything for me. To look, to look at it and know the damage. Like I, I knew based on what the doctors had told me that I'd lost three quarters of my left quad. Yeah, That's like something numerical where you're like three quarters of a quad sounds pretty solid, but it's not until you see those photos, which I came across later on where you're like, whoa, it's, 
that's a lot. And like you said, it is cartoonish how it's just like the perfect bite shape out of the leg. And the photo that you're talking about is after they'd done two operations just to clean all the sand out of it and to to figure out what's there and how like basically what they could do. Because up until the point they did the operation, it was it was pretty grim. They were like, we're we're looking at amputating because we're not sure if we're not sure if the bone is damaged. We're not sure if you know, if this is even sustainable to live with a leg in this condition. Um, and that's why they did the two operations to clean it out, but basically just to try and figure out what they could do. But that idea of amputation is like that, that's brutal. Was um, that discussed with you? Not, not particularly. I remember when they were having some meetings around me that just that word was used. It's not like they came to me and they were like, hey, we're thinking about amputation. What do you reckon? Because Obviously, the patient's response is always going to be no. <laughs> mm. But I think there was just that fear of of losing like this this leg, like this whole limb, because where the bite was, the amputation would have been super high. And I've talked to a few people with prosthetics, and no matter no matter how high or low an amputation is, leg or arm, everyone always wishes they had just a little bit more. Yeah. But this would have been right up against the hip there's there's nothing that you can do for mobility or anything it's there quite so hard to add something on or, yeah yeah it's it's like almost impossible um it's like probably one of the wor- worst amputations that you would have to have which that's bad in itself i didn't really know the reality of that in the situation the worst thing for me was trying to visualize what it would be like to throw away from the knee down which was still perfectly fine like throwing <laughs> like half of a good leg in the bin is something that i wasn't wasn't ready to do so i was you know, although I heard that word amputation, I was like, I, I hope they find something else because I'm not ready for my life to be changed that much. Did that come into the fact that, you know, you're a young man, avid surfer, did they take that into consideration? Like the the, the surgeons and plastic surgeons that were working on you? Like, was that yeah. something that- Yeah, they, that, that is probably the most positive thing that they said to me the whole time yeah. I was in hospital where they, they talk about the, you know, you are young, um, you're, you're fit and healthy as far as a recovery goes and whatever they were going to be able to do they're like, you, you're probably in the best position out of most people. Um, and that's something I kind of realized the messaging that people get in hospital is, is, is always interesting. Um, it's like, and that's probably not even the right word for it, but I suppose the best, the best example of this is when I was in my rehab ward there, it was me and three stroke patients, um, so I was always like the topic of conversation mm. because that was just different to the stroke patients. But there was an old guy who was next to me who he, it was the third time he'd had a stroke. And the first one he had, he was in like his forties and he was telling me how he was, he was probably in his seventies by this time. And he was telling me that each time he'd had a stroke, the messaging had changed for him. Cause he was saying the same thing. He's like, Oh, I bet you they're telling you, you know, you're young, you're healthy and stuff like that. I was like, yeah, that's what they're saying. It's like, I'm, I'm kind of confident. And he's like, as I've been through each one, it went from you're young or you're you're pretty young, you're healthy, you're going to have a good chance of recovery to when he had his third one. It's kind of like, we'll try and get you some basic quality of life back. And for him, he's he's already been through it. So he's like, I know what it takes to get back to it. He's like, I'm not listening to what they have to say, but he's like, <laughs> I guess that goes to speak to how much of the mindset that you have towards these challenges comes into play when it, when it comes to what you choose to do with it. Because for him and for a lot of the other people who are all around that sort of 70, 80-year-old mark, they were pretty grim and they the other two people weren't really making much of their recovery because they were being told that negative messaging but for him he was like no i'm gonna give it my all because yeah. I've, I've been through it i know what to do and he was like you should look at it in the same way but 
that definitely helps as far as when they're choosing what to do. They're like, okay, you're obviously in a position where if you do need to go through intensive rehab, you're probably in a, a good position to be able to do that. So essentially, I guess it's it's good to describe. So lost three quarters of the left quad. Jesus Christ. There was 15 centimetres of exposed bone, which you see in that photo. Yes. <laughs> um, Stupid question, but the bone, was it broken? No, so it wasn't broken. And this is one of the, the things that helped them when it came to deciding not to amputate. Yeah. If the shark had bitten into the bone, then there's a good chance that that gets infected, mm. which means they would just immediately have to amputate it. But the way that the shark bit me and the way that it grabbed onto my leg, so essentially the way to think of it, like if that's my leg and it had bitten into it like that, it hadn't bitten down to the bone, but when it pulled away, Took it away. it's kind of like the- it, It's like you're eating a chicken. I know it sounds stupid, but like eating yeah. like a chicken wing or something, you're just not biting the bone. Exactly, yeah. So that, that's essentially what happened, mm. um, which meant that the bone was undamaged, which is great. Um, and like the membrane that goes around the bone was was still intact. So yeah, 15 centimeters of exposed bone, which they say, although it hasn't been damaged, we need to cover that up so it doesn't get damaged in the future. Yeah. So they end up looking at a few different things they can do, do their research about what they can do and what they decide to do as far as I know, had only ever been done once before. It's called a free flat muscle transplant where they took my entire left lat muscle from my back, like the whole thing, and transplanted that into my leg. And How the fuck do people know? Do I, say, I, don't, I don't know. That's why, I mean, I'm pretty glad this has happened in today's day and age rather than, you know. 60 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it would have been different all, yeah. that, all that time ago. So they they take the the muscle out and they they put it in there. They stretch it to whatever length they need to sew it in but to keep the muscle alive they need to connect a blood supply so they they connect all all the arteries and veins um and then they connect a nerve and they they say with the nerve they're like this might make the muscle work at some point in the future but that's not really the priority we're just doing it for the sake of doing it to see if it'll work the main purpose of this whole operation is just to stave off the risk of amputation and they skin graft everything and then it's kind of just like laying in bed and 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 let that heal for a little bit. Jesus Christ. So because that operation, it's not like, I don't know, it's not like an ACL repair where there's plenty of evidence as far as how long it takes to recover, what you have to do and all of this sort of stuff. It was kind of like, we're just taking it day by day. We don't know if the transplant's going to take first of all. So they're doing plenty of testing in the first couple of days of like if the blood supply is still working through there. So they they came and saw me every couple of hours for the first week with like the ultrasound machine, um, which would show like essentially like the heartbeat of the muscle. Um, and every time they came through, it was like this, you, you're just hoping that it's still working, that it's still there. And this was multiple times a day. And they had two machines that they used. One of them worked great and the other one never really worked. And every time there was like two or three times where they're like we can't we can't pick up a, a blood flow and then they'd be like well, let's go get the other machine and i'm like can, can you guys just use the just good use machine the every time machine. Yeah. yeah so luckily that takes um and then it's kind of just about a long a long period of recovery so i was in hospital for five weeks all up which is a long long time for me to be in hospital it's not long compared to what some people mm. spend in hospital but hospital is a terrible place to spend any amount of time i mean I, I say it's, I mean, apart from the food being terrible and it being really cold in there, it's one of the loneliest places you can be, honestly. And and I was lucky because I had heaps of support, like just a constant stream yeah. of people coming in. But 
it gets real lonely at nighttime when all your support goes home and it's just you laying in a hospital bed with your thoughts. And for me, the thoughts were what the doctors had told me back at the start, which is despite what we've been able to do to save your leg, walking is going to be a massive challenge. You're never going to be active in run or anything like that, but you'll never surf again. And for me, telling myself that stuff on repeat, there's this questioning of like essentially myself, my identity, like what is my life going to look like if I can't surf? And in those moments when I'm alone, that's that's terrible. Like th these are the lowest of lows for me when I'm laying up like at 12.30 at night being like, what's my life going to look like moving forward? Mm. It's hard to find any sort of meaning or purpose when you're in a, a time like that because um, you, you kind of feel real hopeless and you lack this this hope that you need in order to to try and take like this first step on whatever recovery journey is ahead of you. And um, there's this text message that I get, like this kind of turns around with the result of this one text message that I get from my physiotherapist whose name's Scott. Um, Scott messaged me just kind of committing himself to help me with my recovery. He's like, I don't know what's going to be involved, but I'll, I want to help you get better. But he has some words of advice when it comes to goal setting in this text message, which is something that I carry like today. This is like one of the most important things that I think about often as the thing that I speak about every time I'm up on stage mm. and mentioned in pretty much every podcast. But his words of advice in relation to goal setting were that people don't fail by aiming too high and missing. They fail by aiming too low and hitting. He said, look ahead with determination and set lofty goals. Mm. And hearing that was like, I had to read it a few times to understand kind of what he meant by it. But it's really the, the idea that a lot of the time we don't set lofty goals because we're afraid of failing. And that causes us to set something that's maybe not as lofty, but something that we think we can achieve, but we don't know how much potential we leave on the table. And something I realized was explained to Scott when, when we sat down to set some goals and he's like, the reason we want to aim high and we want to be lofty is because he's like, with my expertise, with everything that you have in front of you, as far as rehab goes, we're going to lay out a pathway towards the success of these goals. And how far you get along that pathway is going to be determined entirely by how much hard work and effort you put into the rehab every day. He's like, I know that sounds straightforward, like you work hard and the good things come afterwards, but in order for that to work, you have to let go of this fear of failure because even if we get halfway along this pathway and we'd set goals like regaining my independence, my livelihood and surfing, that was the big one. That was the ambitious one. Mm. He's like, the pathway will help you hopefully get there, but because it's an unknown quantity as far as what this recovery looks like because it's so rare he was like we just need to do everything we can to give ourselves the opportunity of achieving that but along the way there's other, those other goals there um livelihood oh sorry the independence thing was just regaining my way of life so getting around the house driving myself around mm -hmm. livelihood was obviously getting back to work um, and they were the three main goals but he's like if we get halfway along that pathway and we can't get to surfing again he's like that's totally fine it doesn't matter if we get there or not but at least we've giving it a crack and he said if we get halfway you're probably independent you're probably back at work and that means you'll be walking again and I think just looking at how he set goals like that and I was like you know it, I could look at it as a failure because I couldn't surf again or I could look at it as a success because I've regained walking which is something that I wasn't sure that I was going to do at the start so having that mindset towards this <laughs> this problem that was in front of me was essentially what kind of kick-started that recovery and and helped me especially in those early days of having a reason to to want to do it mm. because it's tedious like at the start when you know the, the first couple of weeks of rehab there was nothing i could do for the leg 
it was in a straight leg brace and it was more about kind of building up my overall strength. But then the first thing I could do to leg was I had a brace where I could bend it five degrees every week and five degrees is nothing. <laughs> so the progress feels really slow. And the idea is not so much about knowing that we want to achieve that goal straight away. It's more just taking these small steps and they accumulate over time. Tiny progress. And that's, that's the thing that I hadn't really had to do before. All the, I mean, I had, like that, that was part of the whole surfing journey was being a little bit better every day and we'll see where that leads, but not in a way where it was so structured and kind of regimented like this, where the whole idea was just to be, not to compare myself to the surf that I was before, but it was honestly just to be a little bit better than the day, than the person I was yesterday. Yeah. And the same for the day after that and the day after that. And that was the biggest thing that kind of kept me on track, especially like the early days of recovery were tough when I couldn't bend my leg, but when I could start bending it and we started making progress, things like really took off. Like I was able to, to start getting around. I could drive myself around and then picked up golf. Um, <laughs> pretty good at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, like the, the progress really took off, but then it kind of plateaus when you get to a certain level. And that's when it's really easy to lose the, like that feeling of like <laughs> success that you yeah. kind of have from, from the progress you make in the early days. And that's when you lose that, that feeling, there's a large part of you that's like, well, what is, what are we doing here? What's the point? Like, are we going to be able to actually get to that goal of surfing? But it's not that the the goal has changed. It's not like it's gotten further away. It's just those steps have gotten smaller, which it's is like totally the marginal fine. gains. Like exactly. The, at the start, you're just like ticking these boxes. You're feeling good, and as you're getting better, it's getting harder to yeah, get those stops. Definitely. So that's when that mindset really came into effect of just trying to be a little bit better. Um, and then over months and months and months of doing that, that's when it adds up. What a cool physio as well, man! Like, what a oh, cool Scott, guy just to Scott like. Scotty's the best. Yeah, like, but how much? I suppose you said, like, taking it out of this context, like in life, how much you just need someone sometimes to just like, you yeah. know, you're probably out on your ass. Like you had no idea what you were doing, as you mentioned. You know, you sit in that, we had a podcast with this guy, Jonah Oliver, who's a sports psych. And he said this thing that was so profound one day that like stuck with me more than anything. And it was like, humans would rather the certainty of misery than the misery of uncertainty. Mm. And it's like, you'd rather just go, you know what? I'm never going to fucking walk again than knowing like, am I going to walk again? It's an it's a harder thing because yeah. there's that uncertainty there. Um, did you experience that? Was that um, a little bit? But I think Scott kind of came in at the right stage. Yeah. Um, I guess that that comes back to what we were saying before. Like, as humans, we like answers. Yeah. And if the answer is in front of us, even though it's not something that's conducive to like the ambitions that we might have had before, whatever the setback is, then it might be easy for us just to be like, well let's just stick with this and see how we go. Mm. But I think I, I appreciate Scott's input in my, my recovery so much because there's, there's part of him like tangibly as far as a physio goes, like he was helping me, but he, he became a really good mate and a great support and someone that was always good to chat to that was tracking my progress the whole time is something that I, I kind of, <laughs> I, I was speaking to him afterwards after I, I'd been through a large chunk of this rehab and I was kind of saying like, mate, what you've done for me is, is incredible. I'd love to maybe do something like that for someone else. Just be that emotional support for someone mm. along whatever recovery journey. And he's like, it's a hard part of the job. He's like, it's something that some people are naturally better at than others, but there's not really an expectation there. He's like, the best that you can do is what he said before, lay out a pathway towards 
you know, whatever someone needs. And then if you can coach them through that, that's great. But a lot of it lies within the individual to want to take on that input and to, to respond to it. Cause like, I get people all the time that, cause I was like, what would it be like if, if I didn't have that drive and I didn't want to take your advice or if I didn't want to show up every day, he's like, I probably <clears> wouldn't <throat> have kept working with you. No, because <laughs> he's it's like, it's got to be a two way. You could text two to tango. Exactly. He's like, it can get real frustrating when you're working with people that, that don't have that mindset and that's that's understandable but it's like all you can do and it kind of goes back to what we were saying before is hope that that person will connect with something yeah when they need it and then that's when it'll work out and that's that's kind of difficult to say that you can 100 percent give to someone and that's why when i went to him and i was like i'd love to be able to do that he's like don't yeah <laughs> he's, like, he's like it's he's like it's really noble and he's like it's a great thing to want to do He's like, there's so many other things that you can do, especially with this story. So he, yeah, was, like, he was actually the person. You're that, doing it on bulk now. Exactly. And, yeah. and he was the one that kind of gave me that pathway into speaking and sharing my story like that. It's unbelievable. What a cool guy. You get back in the water. Yep. You have a surf. Yep. And then you decide to like paddle halfway across Hawaii. <laughs> How did those two, like where did that come from after? Like it seems like a big goal to just go from getting back into water, the surfing, to doing this paddle. Like why the paddle? How did it come about? And yeah, what was it? Yeah, I, you made that sound like it happened real quick. Yeah, you know? I know, I know. Just, I'm very good at that. Um, no, what so was, it was it was a, a process. Like getting back to that point of surfing was was its process in itself. And I guess when I got to that point and could reflect on everything that I'd done to get there, I was looking at what my my own takeaways were. And there's, there's a bunch of really important things there, like the the things that I take away that I implement in my life today like there's there's a lot of stuff about coping and support that that are really important to me that i didn't know before the attack that are now a huge part of the person that i am today but one of the big things that i I realized was having that goal to head towards 100 and after i got to that point of surfing it's not like i got there and i was like okay cool like you dust off your hands and you go back to the whatever it was you were doing before like you want to keep evolving and you want to set other goals and it went from, okay, I'm back in the water to what can I do next? It was then I want to improve my surfing. And and that kind of led me on a pathway to get back to the surfing that I'm doing now. But okay. something I realized is that I will always have to do some sort of work to keep my legs strong and healthy. And I'm not the type of person that is always that motivated just to go to the gym and do that if there's no like end point. Oh, no, no, it's just like that we talk about this every day. Yeah, it's, okay. so, it's so hard. Like yeah. I've... You know, I used to play some yeah. some footy and stuff. And when you oh, – I really struggle with this. Like I got into massive – into running a while ago. Then I was like, all right, I'm going to fucking run a marathon. And then I ran the marathon, never ran again. Yeah. So I need a continual big, um, hairy, audacious goal to like challenge me on something. And, and I know that's probably not the best thing, but it's it's what keeps me going. I think I, it's I think it's how you use it too because I'm, I'm exactly the same. I realize that I need something like that. And that's what's led me to do other physical challenges, mm. not so much – because of what it is, but it's more about the fact that it's going to keep my leg healthy and yeah. it's, a, it's a reason to keep active and to keep moving. And um, that is kind of what led me to what well, the first one I did was the Oxfam 100K walk in Sydney. Um, one of my mates was like, hey, you should give this a go. And I was like, yeah, cool. Sounds like fun. Um, that sounds like hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. I'd love to do it again, actually. Um, so I, I did that and then I was the same. I, I kind of finished that and I was like, well, what's next? Run a marathon. That's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did that with a good friend of mine, um, Bradley Drybra, who he he kind of opened my eyes to this amazing world of running. And I, I, why do you think running? Like, why is running something that people do? I, I'm interested to know. For me personally, it was quite funny. I hated running. Yeah. And then 
it's one of those things that we we're talking about earlier, like those marginal gains where you start, you're so bad at it, you see like gradual improvement and then it just becomes like an addiction because it's yeah. like how you feel after it. You go from like not being able to have a conversation, be able to talk some for 40 minutes, you can run for an hour, you run for an hour and a half. So for me, that's what I found. It was just that goal of like trying to extend it each time. Yeah. And then the other part as well was like mentally how I felt after it, like the clarity around like my, like my mind, how clear I was, sweating, um, so yeah, I think those were the main things for me. Yeah. So I, I love hearing that because I think the beauty about running is that it, and this is something that Bradley told me because I asked him the same thing. I was like, why, why is it? And he said, I think it's for most people, anyone can decide to go out and go for a run and running is real scalable. Like for someone to run five Ks can feel the same as someone who's running 45 Ks. Mm. Um, but anyone has the option, well, not anyone, most people have the opportunity to at least try that. And there's a certain comfort that comes in knowing that other people kind of know that struggle of what it's like to do that. Um, but yeah, the, the running thing was interesting because I did the same thing. I, I was like, I'll get into running. I hated it beforehand, enjoyed the process of training, even though it's really time consuming. Um, yeah. Did the marathon, didn't run afterwards. Yeah. What did you, what did you do the marathon in? Um, so I ran it with Bradley and he, he has cystic fibrosis. So he, wow. he's someone who has difficulty breathing and, yeah. and has lung problems. And he, he kind of broke down most of the, like about three quarters of the way yeah. through it. So we, we took our time. I think we, we did it in like five hours or something like that, okay. which is. Now I feel good. bad trying to compete with you on that. Just on the, the running thing as well. Yeah. I just forgot when you asked me that question, the one thing that I love about running too, and I feel like you might connect with me on this is, you know, we were talking before about the water of like going under and like feeling it come out of my body. When I was running in a really weird sense, I'd run and like look at the trees. And in a way I was like, you're speeding up your recovery, like you're breathing more. So all those bad toxins, I was like going, all, right, all this negative energy and shit, I'm literally fastening it up to get it out of my body yeah. whilst running next to a tree that's giving me new oxygen. <laughs> yeah. And like I just like go on this real weird that's your, that's your turtle. Yeah, that's my turtle, man. <laughs> I was just turtling up while I was running. And it was just, it was really cool. Yeah, no, running running is great like that because I, I didn't do it afterwards and then I've gotten back into it recently. My, my wife's running the Sydney Marathon in September, so I'll run that with her, but I'm also doing a 50K trail in July. So wow. I've picked it back up. I went for a run this morning. It was, it was okay. Yep. Um, but it, it is something that is good to do. But to answer the question of the, why the paddle, yes, I, I love now to just have those challenges and the paddle was one that was kind of just a natural progression onto something like that. It did appeal to me beyond just running because it was – it was something that I felt not many people could really understand what that sport is like to do. Um, prone paddling is something that you probably think is similar to, like we mentioned nippers earlier, um, similar to, to that sort of paddling, but the boards are very different to the boards that you, yeah. you see at, at surf clubs because they, they're longer, they have like a hull rounded sort of bottom, which makes them quicker through the water, but heaps more unstable. Mm. I thought I was, I'm like, I've surfed my whole life. I'll be able to get one of these. It'll be, it'll be easy. Like jumped on it in the river and just immediately flipped off. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the humbling, the most humbling thing ever was trying to paddle that for the first time. The so and there's so much to it. Yeah. Oh, I've tried it before. I was terrible. It's, it's, it's really tough. It's so difficult. And part of that appealed to me because I was like, I want to try something where you're not, because with running, it's really easy to compare yourself, right? What time did you run the, mar the marathon? No, man? no, I didn't know. <laughs> I was just curious. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah, but, but it is. It, it is hard to run and not 
not compare yourself to others. Like when I for the run this morning, people running past and you're like, Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's fine. That's whereas <laughs> that was a sport where it is real solo and it's real unique that like you, you it's kind of just you and the challenge really. Yeah. Um, and that's what I found appealing to it. There was also the appeal of kind of, I don't know when I looked into it a little bit more, cause one of my mates, Nick brought it to me and he was like, Hey, we should have a look at doing this. He was the same guy that got me to do the hundred K walk. So he was the instigator to all this. And I was like, yeah, it sounds interesting. Looked into it a little bit more and that crossing is something that so between Molokai Island and Oahu is the Molokai to Oahu, the Kaivi Channel. Mm. That is the the channel that you paddle across. Fifty four kilometers across, like cool. seven hundred and fifty meters deep. Um, wind, swell. That's so deep. Sharks, all these yeah, all these sorts of things in there. So it felt to me like it really started to tie together a few different parts of my story where it really compelled me to want to do it for reasons other than just the physical challenge. Mm. Because I mean, I mentioned the whole, I mean, this takes us back to the turtle thing, the, yeah. the Eddie and the Clyde Icow thing. So Eddie is someone who had paddled that channel a couple of different times. And I, I, I can't actually remember if that was the channel that he, that they were paddling out in. That was the one that he got lost in. It was one of those Hawaiian channels anyway. Yeah. So there was this large connection with sort of the culture of being a waterman, which is something as a surfer you, you are vaguely connected with. It's probably less so now than when surfing kind of first you know, back in whenever it was that surfing first sort of came about, especially in Australia, it's it's definitely changed since then. But it was nice to kind of look back at kind of that tradition, uh-huh. and that was that was really cool. And and this is something that I I mean, we mentioned earlier about the the whole idea of culture and like the spiritual side of surf. There's when I crossed the channel, like when I, I did that paddle, there was this strange feeling of knowing that you have completed something significant, it's like more so than doing a marathon or walking hundred Ks, something about it felt different to me, especially when I finished. And Brad, the guy that I was doing it with, he was like the, the Hawaiians call this, this energy, it's like mana. Mm. And they say, this is like the energy of culture and, and the spirits and all of these different things that, that bring you energy. And it's, it's the first time I've actually felt that sort of difference. Again, it's really, really hard to explain, but I think being able to do that and know that there was more than just this challenge, because for me, it was always about having this thing that was going to be difficult. It was a goal. I've kind of always wanted to have a goal that was going to be hard enough where it took me to the edge of wanting to give up and then asking yourself what it's going to take to push through that and say, I want to keep going. Like that, that for me is the closest I've got to that, but that wasn't the main takeaway I had from it. It was this, this energy of knowing that you've done this thing that has so much culture and tradition about it that kind of is the reason that got me here in the first place like that is what all the first surfers and the hawaiian watermen did and that is what brought surfing to australia and that is kind of what gave me so much of my my life was the ocean i think you're more spiritual than you think you are i think so as well i think think it is real are you realizing this today i think are we we like (laughs) levitating and podcasting right now this is cool I, i feel like there's also this weird thing where i don't want to admit that i'm I feel that way, yeah. but but this you can't it. you can't help but feel it when you have been through been, like that whole experience. Your whole story is so like, you know, it's it's so intertwined. Yeah, in in, in such a special way, it's yeah. really cool. Um, I want people to watch that part, so I don't want to like I want them to have something to go to. Yeah, <laughs> um, of attacking life. What's your next goal? Um, I kind of split it into two. The the next goal for me with the 
with the physical challenges is a 50k trail run Fuck, okay. um, in July, which is the elephant trail race. It's, Where's that in Sydney? It's like west of Port Macquarie. Okay. Um, so it's 50k's, but it's got like 2400 meters of elevation. Fuck so no. the trail run is the next physical one, um, as well as supporting my my wife through her marathon, which would be great. Awesome. Um, that's been a big dream of hers to do one of those. So it'd be nice to to run that with her. And then the other goal that I kind of have is just making sure I'm sharing this story as often as possible. Like 100%. that's a hard one to quantify. It's not like I'm saying that I want to speak to this many people or I want to do this or that. It's it's kind of just this constant, constant thing that I'm heading towards about, you know, it could be speaking at events or it could be doing podcasts or interviews. And the film has been a big part of, of kind of getting the story out there, which is leading to more of these opportunities. But I, I guess that side of things that is, I mean, I mentioned those those stages in my life way back at the start, the surfer, shark attack survivor and storyteller. And that that's the stage that I'm kind of living through it's now. Is awesome, I, I arrived at a point where I realized I was developing this story, which is not only something that's unique, like a shark attack is is something that not many people experience, let alone live to tell the tale and, and have something to share like that. But as I started sharing this story, I realized that it could not only inspire, but it could actually help people as well. And that for me has taken over that feeling that surfing used to give me, like that purpose, because that is something, this is the reason why I did surfing for so long, because it was so much of who I am. But I think by sharing this story, knowing that you can create that impact on people, and it's not necessarily, again, it's not about helping thousands and thousands of people. Knowing that I've been able to help one person is incredible. Like one of the best bits of feedback I've had about the film, like we were talking before about like the cinematography is great and all this sort of stuff, but I had someone reach out to me the second day. So it was released on the 9th of March and on the 10th, this person messaged me and she was like, I, I've watched the movie three times already. And I was like, whoa, and she, and she, I was like, that's amazing. She goes, I had a stroke a couple of years ago. It's inspired yeah, me right. to book into the physio to try and walk again. I was like, that, that's what it's all about. And that for me is, is kind of that new purpose and what's defined this new stage of mine. It's not to say that surfing and all of that isn't a part of my life now, but this is what I, I really care. It brings me so much joy and happiness. Oh, mate, well, fuck, from sitting down with you today, I'm already, like, thinking about what my next, you know, goal has to be. Yeah. I want to do something now because I can feel that, you know, the the amount of energy you've got from doing those things and I haven't even tested myself at all. So I think, like, on no matter what scale it is, as big as it can be from someone that's gone through something incredibly difficult in their life to just going out there and setting a, mate, a goal of being able to run 5K or trying yeah. to swim like a kilometre in a row without swap, um, stopping, I think everyone today will be motivated, hopefully, <laughs> to try and do something like that. Hopefully. Can I put you on the, stop, on the, on the, on the spot and say what's your, what is this goal for what you? What do you think, Das? What should we do? Mine's good when like I have to do it with pe other people yeah. for accountability. Yeah, 100%. I think that's like a big one for me. What do you suggest? Like I've done the marathon. You've done the marathon. That For me, like I love my running, but I've had some calf issues okay. of late that like, of late, I say the last like five years, I just I tear the fuck out of them. So it's really hard. <laughs> I think to be honest, something that maybe so there's two things, right? Okay. I feel you in on a little bit about you know how you saying before about things that scare you. You know, you you weren't scared to get back in the water. You relished it. But one thing I did last year that really tested me is I'm like severely claustrophobic. Like hate tunnels. So I went okay. and did the tunnels in Tasmania. Another one that I really don't even want to do this because. If I say it now, I'm going to have to do it. This is why, I'm, this is why I brought I it up. Fucking, I drive home and I always drive past this like gym where they're doing like Muay Thai. Yeah. And I always drive home going, that makes me sick. Like why <laughs> the fuck would people be like doing that on a Friday night or yeah. something? 
And when I thought about it, I was like, fuck, I have to do it. Like, yeah. I have to go in there and do some Muay Thai with someone. Yeah. So I think maybe that's what it has to be. Like, yeah. go and do some Muay Thai lessons and start like grappling and kicking shins in and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Smacking the shins with fucking bamboo and really strengthening them up. I love that. Is that fit? I, I reckon. Yeah. For sure. For and it's because sure. I really don't want to do it as well. So, yeah, yeah. Um, watch this space. Yeah. I like it. I, I love putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> People I mean, always do it to me. And yeah. like, it's happened to me a bunch of times when I was doing all the media and, and stuff for the for the film launch, everyone kept asking me, oh, you've done this paddle, what's next? Yeah. I'm like, this is what got me in trouble last yeah, time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Especially when you say stuff, it's like and a big thing for me actually is saying it because yeah. it puts it out there and then yep. it makes you accountable. You've got other people with you. Yeah. So I'm going to make a few calls after this and yeah. sign up to some Muay Thai. I love um, it. <laughs> which will be fantastic. Watch your space, man. <laughs> Volkanos be going at it. Um, <laughs> mate, I honestly can't thank you enough for your time today. How, uh, if you're happy to share, how can people, can, they, can you go and speak with people like a, corporates and big events and stuff like that how can people get in touch with you yeah um if anyone is interested in in any of that um best place to get in touch my email is just on my website my website's www.brettcanellan.com yeah um that's got a bunch of info on there but you can always reach out to me and i mean i'm i love being able to do that that's I, unreal man i spoke at um the graduation ceremony last night at um hammer hall which is a beautiful beautiful venue it's one of the the few times I, I had spoke twice and the first time I was like just taking in this beautiful venue and yeah. the second time I was like, I can't wait to get back out there, which is which is actually rare for me because speaking is something that always has scared me, like especially getting up in front of that many people. I'm usually, a, my whole life I was really shy and reserved and I think getting to that point where you look at something like that and you're like, I want to do that. that, that would be in a past life or like years ago, that would be the biggest challenge that I could think of. That'd be my more more time. That you more time. Yeah. So I really don't want I, to do the more time. I um. Yeah. But once you do it, you'll you'll love I'll it. I'll send you some photos. Yeah. With me and my um, more time. I Mate, that's wait. awesome. I can absolutely vouch that it'd be incredible for you to get to to go and do that, man. So I'm excited for it. And um, maybe even as another little one, what we should do is when I'm up in Sydney, let's go for a surf. I'd love bon, a bit Bondi, of a South Bondi rip. Let's South do it. Bondi, no, South Bondi rip. Uh, <laughs> let's not go there again. But yeah, maybe somewhere else. Yeah. Not Bombo. Bombo? No. Not Bombo we, either. We can, I don't want to go to Bombo. You don't want to go to Bombo? All right. Well, we've got a few options. Okay, so we'll, so we'll hit me up out. and we'll, we'll sort it out. Done, man. Thank you so much. For anyone who wants to get in touch, um, make sure you hit it all up. This has been unbelievable, man. I really kind of appreciate your time. Have fun in Europe. Thank you. You're heading there yeah, after this. I am, yeah. And um, it's been incredible to meet you, bro. I'm sure we we'll, would love to have you a part of the family as much as possible. Man, thank you. Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening to another Producey podcast. If you enjoyed the show, that'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, subscribe, tap the bell, leave a review, or even share with one of your friends, or you could do them all. If you want to get in touch to share feedback, suggest a guest, or advertise with one of our podcasts, then email hello at producey.com. Thanks for tuning in. IllyXX. KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with 
with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble.